0: Well, good morning. Once again, we're going to jump in. So, grab your Bible and uh, turn over to Romans chapter 16. Here we are getting to the end of the book of Romans, which is kind of exciting because then we get to get ready for First Corinthians. And just if you were wondering, that's the game plan: is just to make our way through the New Testament uh, as it's laid out there in the Bible, um, not necessarily chronologically. That's a different study in terms of how the Bible books got where they are. But just uh, that's just what we're going to do. We're in Romans now. 1 Corinthians next, and so we're just going to keep going through the Bible and just learn what what the Lord wants to teach us through that. But turn over to Romans 16. We're at the end, and here's – I was always taught this as a kid in church, and I would hear this over and over again, like how the introductions and the endings to the letters in the New Testament, right, were really important. Like they were chock full of information. I'm like, it's just a bunch of names, like whoever the letter was, whether it was Paul or Peter or James, whatever, at the end of the letter, they would say hi to people. There would be all kinds of things. There would be greetings, right? And they would be like, hey, send my love to so-and-so and tell this person that I really am happy for them. Uh, there would also be things like warnings that the author of that letter would, would send out. Hey, watch out for this guy. He's not behaving correctly or this person needs to sort of get their act together. That kind of a deal. The author of those letters would make various requests, right? At different times, Paul would say, Hey, here I am stuck in this place. Would you send me my study books or would you send me my coat that I left in this city, right? Things like that, which is which just really, really common and, and simple. But then he would also al- always um, offer praise and commendation to people. He would say, Hey, this person's gonna come visit you. Honor this person, like make room for this person in your fellowship. And and honor this person and and give them a place to stay. Um, It was sort of like when you get together as the church, this person knows what they're talking about. Go ahead and listen to what they're saying. Like he would approve of people. And then Paul would always specifically offer a benediction, a prayer of blessing upon the church that he was writing to. And that all sort of comes from the, the, the end of the letter, the salutation of the letter, right? And, and so each, each letter, as you read through, there are those elements. Now, again, like I said, as a kid, I was always told, like, it's really important to read the end of the letter. There's a lot of stuff there. And as I would read through, I'd be like, it's just the guy saying, bye, see you later, right? It was just real simple and sort of official. But there's something definitely more there if we sort of pull the lens back a little bit and think from the perspective of, okay, Paul's been teaching this church – these, these Christians who are together in the city of Rome, right? The seat of power in the Roman Empire where Caesar was, specifically Caesar Nero at that time. And, and Christians were this, at that time, this fringe little sect of religious people who were following this carpenter uh, from the Holy Land and, and going like, no, this guy is the Messiah. He's the one that God has sent to redeem our lives back to God's possession. Like, this is a big deal, this Jesus guy, right? And some of the indication of of, of who Paul is talking to in this letter is not just the gathered together church, like us, we're gathered together, followers of Jesus coming together, but specifically the members of that gathering, there's a lot of indication that they were part of the Roman government. People who were part of Caesar's own household, guards who, who worked in his prisons, those kinds of things, who had been converted, who had heard about Jesus. Somebody had shared the gospel with them. And even from their place in in Rome, in Caesar's empire, they had become Christians. And so Paul was talking to a really diverse group of people, very different than the people that he would have been talking to in, let's say, Jerusalem, right? Who had that Jewish, Jewish history and that sort of tradition already built in, in this belief in a monotheistic religion, right? Like Judaism is. Paul's talking to a pretty diverse group of people. And so when, like I say, when we pull that lens back and sort of look at who Paul is talking to at the end of his letter as he sends out these greetings, it gives us a really good picture of the diversity of the body of Christ, meaning all the different kinds of people that he acknowledges are a part of the church. And that's incredibly important for us to see this. Because what it does is it allows us to acknowledge that within the gathering of the church, the people who make up the church, there's an incredibly wide spectrum. There's a diverse group of people that God calls to be a part of his kingdom and then empowers by his Holy Spirit to use for the exact same purpose. Tons of different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses, different struggles, different experiences, different stories, all brought together do the exact same thing, and that is to fulfill two things. As a follower of Jesus, there are two things that we are called to fulfill. Number one is the great commandment. We are called as followers of Jesus to fulfill the great commandment, and the great commandment is this, love God and love others. That's it. That's what Jesus says. Everything that has been written in the Old Testament, all of the law, everything the prophets were calling the nation of Israel to, it was summed up in these two statements, but that he included as one commandment. Love God and love other people. That's what we're called to do. That's the first thing. As followers of Jesus, the second thing that we're called to do is go out on what's called the Great Commission. The Great Commission, that is to go out into all the world and make disciples. Not just make converts or believers, but disciples, people who are saying, I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus and follow him. I'm actually going to do what Jesus says I'm supposed to do. Now, I'm going to muck it up and I'm going to mess it up and it's going to be dirty and it's going to be messy and there's going to be false starts and there's going to be uh, just shipwrecks along the way, but I'm going to follow after Jesus. And we who are of the faith, who are a part of Christ, are called to go and make disciples of other people who believe upon Jesus. We are all, every single one of us, called to the ministry of the gospel. This is one of the things that I think is important for us and why I think it's so good to see the diversity of people that Paul addresses at the end of this huge letter to the Romans, this book of Romans that we have in the New Testament, which hits on so much deep theology and strong teaching and an understanding of our need for Christ, all of those things being true, Paul ends it with this statement that allows us to see how all manner of people who are in Christ are called into the ministry of the gospel, not just the guy who's standing up in front of the gathering on Sunday mornings or teaching the Bible study on Wednesday nights or singing the songs or whatever it might be, as we typically imagine in our local church context in the local church so take a look at Romans chapter 16 beginning in verse 1 and what what I want you to really sort of categorize uh, these things into this morning is two separate lists the first being who to watch for in the church those who are in the church these are the people that you need to watch for and what that means is who to make space for within the church Who's a part of the church? Who are we to engage with the giftings that God has given them? This is what Paul is talking about in this first section of Romans chapter 16, verse one. So let's take a look at this first section. Romans 16:1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kencreai, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa, also known as Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. These other two names that I can't pronounce. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. And then he lists all the other names that I can't read. And the brothers and sisters who are with them. And then he goes on in verse 16 and says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Tons of names that sound obviously very ancient and not ones that we use unless you're pregnant, ready to have a baby, some name suggestions perhaps. You can look through here, a lot of a lot of names you don't hear that much these days, I would assume, maybe in Greece. But I want you to first take a look at who to watch out for in the church. Paul begins by listing a name here, the name of Phoebe, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church at Kenkreath the word servant there is diakonos it's where we get our word deacon and all that means is deacon simply means servant phoebe was a servant of the church and so the first type of person or group of people that i want you to understand paul is commending in the diversity of the body of christ is women I think that is a huge statement that we need to make and be aware of because one of the criticisms that people have of Christianity a lot of times is that Christianity and that the God of the Bible is somehow sexist, that he doesn't like women, that he excludes women to the advantage of men and places men up here in a high position and women down here in a low position. That accusation is completely false and has no merit. I want you to take note of just some of Jesus' examples of interaction, healing, and calling to ministry of women. And understand that just even simply by Jesus' example of how he interacted with women, it's enough to show that the God of the Bible is one who affirms, protects and even calls women to participate in the work of the kingdom. At the time of Jesus's ministry, Jewish custom and culture and tradition excluded women from participation in synagogue worship. When they would come to synagogue and sit and be a part of the service, women weren't allowed to participate. They could merely be spectators of along sort of the sides of the walls and sit back, and they couldn't actively participate in worship or anything else that took place in the synagogue. And and they were definitely not allowed in the temple, the place of worship, except for what was called the court of women. They were sort of stuck over here to the side and said, you can't go beyond the boundaries of this area that we leave for you. Jewish culture at that time socially discouraged men and women from having conversation. And just in general, even like husbands and wives, it wasn't encouraged to have this like dialogue and conversation with husbands and wives. And in regard to any type of public display for a man and a woman to speak publicly was incredibly frowned upon. This is the culture that Jesus is raised in and this is the culture that he is ministering in. And that's not even to mention, that's not even to mention the inequity of the application of the law. When Jesus showed up and started teaching on things like marriage and divorce, sexual immorality, adultery, those manner of things, the reason he caused such a stir is because he was teaching things that flew in the face of the way that God's law had been applied to the people. He was teaching the true intent and heart of the law, not the way that it had been wrongly interpreted by the Pharisees and the scribes. See, it was, in in that Jewish culture, only men could have adultery committed against them. They were the ones who had rights in the marriage. It was commonly accepted that a man, even if he was the husband of a wife, might go see a temple prostitute, and there would be no repercussion for him. But if a woman were caught in some type of indiscretion, she would be taken out and stoned to death. There was no protection for a woman in that environment. Now, Jesus comes along and he begins to show a completely different example of how to interact with and treat women. Just take note of several examples, all backing up the idea that God is for women and desires women to be a part of not only his kingdom, but his ministry as well. Jesus, in John chapter 4, spoke with the woman at the well, who had five previous husbands, and was currently living with a guy that she wasn't married to. And Jesus takes time and speaks to this woman, and interacts with this woman, and talks about how he himself is the one that is going to be the one that is worshipped. And and he explains this to her and and she says, I perceive that you're a prophet because you know things about me and because you're speaking about this role that you have in, in worship. And she goes out into the city, back into the city, and starts telling people. This woman goes out and starts telling people about who Jesus is. When the disciples come along and see that Jesus was having this conversation with this woman, they're like, Lord... Is everything okay here? Like you can almost pick up the the, the sound and the tone of their voice as they ask that question. Lord, is everything all right? Why? Because he's talking to a woman out in public. Unheard of at that time. Jesus affirmed relationships with women in this regard. He accepted the invitation of his friend Martha to come to her home and have dinner. Luke chapter 10. There's two things to learn from this. Luke chapter 10, he he accepted Martha's dinner invitation, a woman inviting a man to come over to dinner, right? And it was a party. It wasn't some, some, some inappropriate relationship. But regardless, again, socially unheard of at that time. In that same story, Luke chapter 10, Mary is used as an example to the entirety of the church for us to look at and go, Mary is this example of one who seems to get it, who seems to understand what the relationship with Jesus is all about. It's not just about running around doing stuff, right? Filling up our time with work. Mary's sitting at Jesus's feet and just soaking it in, just spending time with Jesus, listening to his words, listening to what he's saying to her. And she's commended for that. She's the example of what we're supposed to be doing in our, in our walk with the Lord, is just sit and listen to Jesus. The last example I want to use is, is, again, another one that was culturally important at that time. Mark chapter 5. Jesus heals a woman, it says, who had an issue of blood, that she had been bleeding nonstop for a long period of time. And as Jesus was pushing through the crowd, this woman, in a great act of faith, simply reached out and touched the hem of his garment, And Jesus said he felt power go out from him. And he turned around and said, who was it that touched me? Now, the reality is, is Jesus knew who touched him. He knew what was going on, but he wanted to give her an opportunity to say it publicly and say, it's me, Lord. I need you to heal me. And Jesus touches this woman who, by Jewish law, and by the custom of that culture, because she had this issue of blood flow, was unclean. Meaning that anything she touched was now defiled and needed to be ceremoniously cleansed. And yet Jesus allowed her to touch him, the one who is perfect and not defiled by anything. And Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go your way and be healed. Even in those simple four examples, of which there are many more, we see and can understand and perceive that Jesus recognizes women he didn't work in his ministry he didn't heal to the exclusion of women oftentimes women were the were the ones who sort of first understood who jesus was and what was going on just think about the tomb right who did he appear to first right mary and some other women and, and it was just like you guys who were already doing the thing that was probably what the men should have been doing, showing up at Jesus's tomb, bringing things to anoint his body, those kinds of things, right? You go tell the boys, I've resurrected, I'm back. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. They're a little slow. They're a little behind the curve. But you ladies who are on top of the ball and know what's going on, you guys go tell the boys what's up. Jesus would call these women into ministry with him. Now, We see not only in Jesus' example in those stories, amongst others, but we see in Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Romans, we see Paul's consistent partnership and participation with multiple women in the church, including their participation in ministry and, and affirming their role in partnering in the work of the gospel. That is an affirmation from both Jesus and the Apostle Paul that we need to take in and just go, yeah, there's value here in this room and not just because of the guy who's standing up in front of the room teaching the Bible study. Women don't ever feel like you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Jesus acknowledges you. The Holy Spirit has filled you with gifts to be used for the building up of the church. Now, here's the caveat to that. And this is what causes a stir for most people who are outside of the faith. Here, here's the thing that, that most people who do not believe upon Jesus or hold the scripture to be authoritative in our lives, this is where they sort of lose their stuff and go, oh yeah, well if you like women so much, how come women can't be pastors? How come women can't be the elders in the church? You guys in your Bible, and your old-fashioned ways. Here's the deal. Here's the caveat. Men and women from the beginning of time, from the creation of humanity and all that is in the earth have been equally valuable to the Lord, equally used as a part of his plan of redemption, but have distinct roles, different roles. Not a judgment on value by any regard, but God makes it very, very clear that men have certain responsibilities and roles that they're supposed to fulfill in their life as well as in the church. Women fall under the same judgment. That they have different roles in life, different behaviors and participations, and different roles within the church. This is a good thing that God gives us this structure to be able to go, oh, that men, here's your responsibility. Do this job. And we can see throughout the history of the New Testament, or pardon me, the Old Testament, when men didn't do their job. And what would happen? Women would then step up and have to do that job. Until the men sort of went, oh, yeah, that's my job. Let me get back into being faithful in those things. This has happened consistently throughout the history of the church. But again, the roles of those men and women, all valuable to the Lord, just different in application. Phoebe here was a servant, she was a deaconess, if you will. She was one who served the church. And what Paul says is that she is worthy of honor. Welcome her in a manner that is worthy of the saints, one who is a part of the body of of Christ. She's worthy of honor and she is to be helped Paul says in any way she needs. Here's the subtext. Phoebe's going to come to you and in fact there's many scholars who believe that Phoebe was actually the one that was entrusted with the letter to the Romans to deliver it to the church with this commendation from the apostle Paul saying this woman is worthy of honor. She's the one who I entrusted to actually take this letter of <coughs> doctrine and teaching and theology and instruction to you so that you could learn from it in the church. She's worthy of honor. And he says, help her in any way she needs, which means she's going to show up and she's going to go, I need some things to get this job done. Just do what she tells you. Paul's going, she's got the, the free pass from me. She has that role and responsibility that I've sent her on this mission to accomplish. Now, the other thing that we see here that is said, Paul says at the end of verse two, she, Phoebe, has been a patron of of many, and of myself as well. This is what it means simply. Phoebe had independently funded the ministry of a bunch of people. Paul himself had been the recipient of Phoebe funding his ministry, his, his possibly his missionary travels, or the needs that he had when he was in a different city so that he could survive, so that he could live and just go about doing the work of ministry, studying and teaching and, and making disciples. Phoebe was one who was a benefactor, if you will. She paid for the ministry of other people. Now, we don't know a lot about Phoebe personally. We don't know who her family was or how it is that she had this ability to fund people. Certain certain scholars believe that perhaps she had been married previously and her husband had perhaps died and left his fortune to her or perhaps a father who didn't have any sons and that he had passed along money to her, although that would have been a little bit out of the norm for the Jewish culture. But regardless, there is historical record of women, even within the Jewish culture, who were treated like royalty, like they were almost princesses kind of a thing, and they were allowed to have and amassed great wealth and were able to be independent financially. And so what we know is, is that Phoebe, the indication here being that she is single, not married at this time, able to go on various missionary endeavors, and had the resources to be able to help other people do the same thing. That's powerful. That's an important thing to understand because it affirms two things. If if all of that, if we take that and, and consider all of that, it allows us to affirm two things as we as we move off of this topic, but that Paul... And Jesus and the Lord himself, obviously, call women to be a participant in the kingdom and in the ministry, as well as single people. And the reason it's important to note that is because oftentimes in the church, people who are single often feel or unintentionally are treated like perhaps second-class citizens as well. That somehow to be of value in the church, you have to wait until you attain to the status of marriage but that somehow becomes this this golden ring of like when I get there then I could really begin my life and really begin my ministry now it's important for us to note that that whether it be the fact that you are a woman or that you are single that there is value in the position that you have there's value that Jesus calls you to participate in ministry Paul as well obviously But the second group of people that we recognize here in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, is Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul says are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house, Priscilla and Aquila, an example of how in the body of Christ, in the ministry of God's kingdom, the gospel, married couples are to be watched for. To make room for married couples and watch how they, how they serve in the body of Christ. It is a good thing to commend marriage and even expect that the Lord would use married couples together in ministry. There is nothing better than seeing a husband and a wife linked together in ministry. Serving together in the way that God has placed in front of them and and, and just be able to just be there as accountability for each other, just to enjoy the calling, to use their giftings, oftentimes complementary of each other in terms of they might have diverse, different gifts, but they come together and form a more perfect union, a more perfect opportunity to minister the gospel to people. Marriage is one of the most graphic imageries used in all of the Bible that is an example to us of Jesus Christ and the church and how Jesus and the church are supposed to work together and how they interface with one another. And therefore, marriage is an example of in the church is to be valued and to be watched out for. Several other categories as we finish up this idea of who to watch out for in the church. Women, married couples, sacrificial servants. Sacrificial servants is a third group. It says of Priscilla and Aquila that they were fellow workers in Christ who risked their necks for my life. And then as you walk through this scripture, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, Paul commends all those different named people for the work that they did in the church. The hard work of ministry, sacrificial servants, those who labor for the Lord. There is always work to be done in the mission of the gospel there's work on sunday mornings to set up speakers and chairs and and you know kids areas all that kind of stuff that's that's absolutely true but outside of just the physical gathering of the body of christ there is always work to be done there are always people to be praying for there are always people to be welcoming in and having fellowship with and building one another up There are always people to be trying to host with hospitality, strangers, those who we don't know well, inviting them in and welcoming them to become a part of the body of Christ by sharing the good news of the gospel with them. Paul commends sacrificial servants. Paul also commends, if you look at verse 5, new converts. Paul says, uh, greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia see again I think a lot of times in the church and in the, in the structure of the church where we get together we expect that the people that are going to be used we call it meaning they get to work in the church or or perform ministry in the church need to be people who've been at this for a long time and sort of have have this sort of history and resume of their Christianity if you will and the reality is, is that Paul, in this one statement, makes makes a, a bold proclamation that, hey, listen, a new convert is to be watched out for in the church. Man, we want people who are new to the faith. They are the direct result of the, of the ministry of the gospel, new converts. So watch out for them because they're valuable to us. We want people who are young in the faith. We want people who are weak in the faith. We want people who who don't really understand what they're supposed to do when they walk into church. And I don't know where the book of Romans is in my Bible. What do you mean intercede for other people? I don't know the church language. We want those people. We want to make space for those people in the church so that we can do what? Fulfill the mission that Jesus gave us. Make disciples out of them. Teach them. Show them this is the way of Jesus. This is how he behaved and lived and thought and talked and interacted. Let's practice that. We want those type of people. We want to make room for those type of people. And What that means as I've said this before several times in the last month or so. It might mean that our times together as the church are kind of messy. They may not all be perfect. Things may not go off exactly the way that we're used to. As I'm teaching someone who's perhaps new to the faith, I'll just throw this out there because I've been in these situations where someone's teaching, preaching, and everyone else here knows you're just supposed to sit here and listen and take notes if you're a good Christian and follow along in your Bibles. You guys get what you're doing, right? We're just waiting until he's done so we can have the bread and the juice and get out of here, right? Like we understand the whole system. Someone who's new to the faith, right, Who's not, who doesn't understand this gathering in the middle of, of what I'm teaching might just go, what the heck do you mean by that? Like they may stand up in the middle of a service and just go, I don't understand what that means. Hey, that would make most of us uncomfortable. We'd go, hey, that's not how it works at church. Listen, I am longing for the day. When someone stands up in the middle of the church and goes, hey, Lucian, I have no clue what you just said. Could you rewind that for a second and give it back to me again? I, 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 I hope I'm not so institutionalized in my expectation of what church is supposed to be like, that I couldn't handle someone standing up and going, that didn't make sense, explain it better. It's okay for us to be messy. This isn't a performance. This isn't about disrupting some sort of perfect image of what a church service is supposed to look like. Yeah, I'm up here talking and, and, and teaching out of what I've learned of the scriptures, but the Holy Spirit is moving in you guys. He's working in you right now to the point where you may not stand up in the middle of the service and go, hey, I got a question about that. You may have enough tact or understand at this point and go, I'm going to make a note of that. I'm going to go talk to him after service. Or at the very least, I'm going to go home and ask my spouse what they thought about that and get some feedback. Or I'm going to go look it up myself and and try and figure out what's going on, right? That's what we're looking for. And so those who are new to the faith, new converts, man, we want to make room for them. Verse seven points out to us that we also want to make room for those who are suffering. Verse seven says this, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. Anytime there's someone who is in prison in that day and age that Paul's writing about, it was synonymous with the idea of suffering. Man, we who are the body of Christ, following the way of Jesus, we are called to be people who bear with the weaknesses of, the burdens and the sufferings of those who suffer. Man, we need to make space in the church for people who are hurting, for people who are suffering. This needs to be a place where people know that they can come and go, listen, you may not understand a word of what the preacher man talked about. You may not like any of the music that that was going on this morning, but this is a place that you can come and know that somebody's gonna care about you. Somebody's gonna take time out to just listen to you. Hear what you're going through. Even if they don't have answers on how to fix all those things, at the very least, they're going to pray for you. And they're going to ask God, who they believe in, to actually do a work in your life. We need to make space for people who are suffering. And then finally, the the Apostle Paul here in this section commends and says, listen, acknowledge, make room for families, mothers, brothers, brothers, Sisters, fellow kinsmen, I said it last week, you know, the whole idea about the church being a family used to weird me out. I didn't like it, man. What a dysfunctional family this would be if it really was, man. But, but, that is the language of the scripture. That's the language of God's kingdom. We're family. We're stuck together. We're supposed to be together, treating one another like brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith. This is what we're called to. Now, the second group of people that I want to just point out this morning and end our time with today, the first is who to watch who to watch out for or who to look for, right? Who to watch for, pardon me, let me say that correctly, who to watch for, who to make space for, who to engage with in the church. The second group of people that Paul talks about here are people to watch out for or very specifically, who to avoid. Now, that in and of itself is perhaps a strong statement because we oftentimes think of the church as the place where everybody's welcome. Why would we avoid anyone at church? We want everybody here, right? Well, let's take a look and see what the Apostle Paul says in verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17, Paul also says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, meaning I beg you, to watch out for those who cause divisions, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And he finishes that statement by saying, Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your own or for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good. And innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's two groups of people that the Apostle Paul says you need to specifically avoid. You need to watch out for them. You need to be aware that they exist, that they come into the church, and that they're a problem. And you need to avoid them. The first is this, people who cause divisions people who come into the church, and while they may look and act and, 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 and behave like someone who knows what they're doing and is supposed to be here at church, but over the course of time, what happens is they're a person who just seems to get into relationships, get into issues, and just seems to bring division or separation in the body of Christ. Why does Paul say this? Because over the last couple chapters, What has he been pounding on about? What is he trying to get into our brains and our hearts? Is that we who are a part of the body of Christ, no matter where we are, if we're a part of Jesus and the way of Jesus, we're to be unified. We're supposed to be in agreement and like-minded and going, yeah, we understand. Love God, love people, make disciples. We all get that no matter how we do church, no matter what tradition we come from. That's the same message that we all understand. And so Paul says... Get away from, avoid people who create division rather than unity. Mark down Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians five, verse one. And listen to how Paul would speak to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians church about this. Ephesians five, one says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is a further idea, a further exposition of what Paul says in terms of avoiding people who create division in the church. They bring into the church things that are destructive, things that are not right for believers. He talks a lot about sexual immorality. He talks about crudeness. He talks about behavior and a language that doesn't meld and mesh together with the example of Jesus of whom we are being transformed into. That kind of stuff, Paul says, just avoid it. Put it away. All that kind of language, all those kinds of things, avoid that stuff. That's the first group of people he says to avoid. The second group of people that he talks about avoiding back in Romans chapter 16 is those who are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid these people. Avoid people who oppose scriptural teaching. Paul would say these are the types of people who deceive those who are simple or naive, If you are a believer in Jesus and you are in the faith, but you haven't been discipled well yet, if you haven't spent time in the scripture to know God's word for yourself, you are not as a slam, not as a put down, but if you are not filled with God's word yet, then your understanding of the way of Jesus is gonna be fairly simple and perhaps even naive. And so you as a follower of Jesus need to be cautious that what you are listening to and whose example you are following is someone who aligns with God's word and not someone who's trying to take you away from what has already been taught in Scripture. Paul would even say at the beginning of the book of Galatians, if an angel were to appear to you and preach to you a different gospel than the things that we have already written to you, Paul would say, we've already written all the things that you need to understand about Jesus, If an angel were to appear to you and tell you something different, let him be accursed, anathema. Let him be cut off and put away. Don't listen to anything other than what has already been faithfully delivered to you. And Paul would say, avoid those kinds of people. Here's how that applies for us. This is happening left and right all over the Christian church throughout the world. That as culture changes, as culture grows... As, as the world sort of, sort, sort of shifts and changes over history, then oftentimes Christians who are, uh, who are confronted with the idea of social change feel this burden to somehow make the Bible relevant to our day and age. And so they take the parts of the Bible that the world doesn't like and they just take it out and they remove it and go, God can change with the times, He's a God who who created everything. And so he knew that culture was going to shift. And we were going to get these new understandings of sexual dynamics. And we knew that there was going to be different understandings of what what real uh, life is about. And so we can change the word of God as we move forward through culture and history. Paul would say these are the kinds of people who oppose scriptural teaching. Avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. Now, we find that hard to do in the church. To, to conduct discipline in this way because it feels like we're being mean. It feels like we're being rude to tell someone, hey, what you're teaching is wrong. It doesn't match up with the Bible. Yeah, but who who, who says it does, doesn't match up? Who says it can't? God does. It's in the Bible. You can read it and go, this is what he says about things. And if the thing that you believe doesn't match up with this, you're wrong He's right. It's as simple as that. That is not a popular voice. That is not a popular opinion. That's not how you make friends and win influence with people, so to speak. But it is the way that the history of the church has absolutely turned the world upside down is by maintaining the veracity and the truth of what God has already given us in the scripture. And we're told explicitly that in the church, if someone keeps Pushing those things keeps trying to veer away from what Scripture says. We who are in the church are called to cut them off until they repent. Until they go, yeah, you know what? That was dumb. That was a mistake. I was totally off on some other weird thing. You're right. The Bible's true. I need to just stick with what the Bible says. When they repent, great. Welcome them back in. But until they repent, you don't allow them to come into the fellowship and try and poison and separate people out from the the fellowship. We finish with this idea in Romans 16. Paul says in verse 19, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise, be familiar with what is good and innocent. There is somehow in our culture this sort of cachet or this sort of like uh, this advantage to being wise to the ways of the world. To somehow understand innuendo or be part of the inside joke, the wink, wink, the snicker, snicker, whatever it might be. There's somehow this cachet to go, oh yeah, yeah, I've experienced some things in the world and I know what the world's all about. Paul would say, I want you to be innocent of the knowledge of the things of the world. I don't want you to have that baggage. I don't want you to have to have gone through those heartbreaking things that give you that knowledge. Rather, he says, I want you to be innocent or ignorant, unaware of what is evil. It's okay, even preferable perhaps, to be the person culturally who in olden days was referred to as square. There's a great song from the 80s. It says, it's hip to be square. Let's just be honest about that. Paul would say, I want you to be ignorant of evil. Man, I just don't want you to touch that stuff or know know those things. It is to be desired to not be familiar with vulgarity. That's what we should desire, is a purity in our lives. Yep, you guys are goody-two-shoes. You don't watch those movies. You don't listen to that music. You don't use that language. Yeah, we don't. It's just not a part of who we are. We don't want to be that way. We want to be innocent in those things. I've said I'm going to finish twice. I'll say it a third time and mean it this time. (coughs) Paul finishes this statement in verse 20 by saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In all things, we have a desire to do what is right, to follow after Jesus. I said it earlier, but it's true, and I'll say it again. Man, that's gonna come in fits and starts. The evidence of someone who's truly saved is is exactly what scripture talks about. That when they fall down, they simply get back up again. When they feel as though they've failed completely, morally or sexually, or or even just in their thoughts or how they've talked to one another, not fulfilling the law of love, the law of Christ. Man, the person who truly has had their heart changed is the one who continues pursuing Jesus, who gets up again and again and again. In verse twenty-seven. Paul says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. God's identity and God's purpose are completely linked to his glory. Nothing about who God is or what he does can be separated out from his glory. God is love, that's how we like to describe him a lot of times. God is love, that's the entirety of who he is. Yes, God is love. But the root and the manifestation of every identifying character trait of who God is, every predestined action, every decision, every motivation of God comes from God's priority to be glorified in all of the earth. And so Paul ends his letter to the Romans by saying, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.